0: I'm actually quite familiar with your backstory. But, you know, I've always tried to do my part in this space, and I think that's something that's been missing these last few years.
1: All right, my friends. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're now listening to The Charlie Shrem Show that's powered by Untold Stories. And I'm excited to the fact that we're, we're taking Untold Stories and making it our larger organization because it allows me to put out some really cool new shows for you guys like a Bitcoin white paper series and some other episodic themes uh, in the crypto space. You know, our roots are never going to go away and we're always going to be doing Bitcoin and crypto, but really follow along what I've been doing for the last shit, my whole life. I think my whole adult life. I'm 30. I just turned 33 years old and I've been in the Bitcoin space since I was like 21. So I don't know another life outside of this one. So when you're going through hard times, good times, or bad times, just remember that Charlie has probably been through worse. Cheers, and thank you for listening. I want to present my guest, and I really appreciate him coming today. Alex Dyshnefsky, you're the founder of AngelBlock, an amazing DeFi protocol that we've been talking about on the show for the last few months. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And I'm really excited. You have a phenomenal background. How was your weekend?
0: Busy, busy, but good. Thanks for having me, Charlie. You know, I've, I've been a fan of yours personally for many years. So this is like a really cool experience for me. Really appreciate it.
1: I love doing these podcasts. I don't know what my life would be without Untold Stories. It's going to be weird calling it The Charlie Shrem Show. I'm going to have to like figure out a better moniker or whatever, but we have some really cool production and and things coming out of it. And I got this got this notebook the other day. And um it's actually made out of it's made out of paper that's made handcrafted by woman made out of the Daphne plant in Nepal. And this is like really cool paper that I decided to start writing on and like journaling and everything here. No, it has a really good quote here on the cover. We are visitors on this planet We are here for 90 or 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true meaning of life. How do you feel about that quote?
0: I love that quote, you know, and uh, I feel it really hits the nail on the head with what I've been saying. Last few years, but especially this year, I took some time to be a guest in a few spaces, a few of these AMAs going around, you know, like Telegram, Twitter, what have you. And one thing that I keep repeating, and I think it's especially important to where we are now in the market is if you're in crypto, you will make money. But I think it's much more important the way that you make money rather than how much you make, you know, and I feel like we kind of lost our way very recently with everything that's been going on in the market. And it's time to go back to our roots. And I really think that it's important to do good in this space. Like I've been in crypto not as long as you, like I've I've started in 2015. I definitely didn't start, you know, on the same level as you like I'm actually quite familiar with your backstory. But, you know, I've always tried to do my part in this space. And I think that's something that's been missing these last few years. one conversation that i recently had like i just came back from berlin next expo berlin which was a phenomenal conference and one thing that we noticed with a few of my friends that i've been crypto for for a number of years is this bear market feels different and not necessarily good different because back in 2018 2019 i feel like when prices started tumbling down we had less grifters than we do right now i don't know if you if you have like a similar feeling right now Maybe it's just me personally, but I feel like the grifters and the scams are still at a high level, which was a really nice part about the last bear market is everybody, you know, prices go down, everybody just kind of leaves. And I think we've, we've reached that level, that threshold where people know that high prices, bull runs, they might be back maybe sooner rather than later, who knows, probably later in my opinion, but It's something that's definitely worrying and and it's definitely something that I spent a lot of time thinking about is how how do we improve this space? How do we make this space safer? not only for new users, for existing users, but I am since my centralized exchange days, I've always had this ethos of if we do not self-regulate in crypto, then we will become overregulated by governments. And I think that's something that's happening in the US right now, right? Where it's become overregulated in many ways. Some say it's not regulated enough. And on the other hand, you have the SEC doing what it's doing. You have, you know, IP blocks on protocols. And I just think it's not going the right way. So I I really think it's time to step up and do some good and and show that we can lead from a technological standpoint in order not to become over-regulated in the near future. That's what it comes
1: down to at the end of the day. We have to be fully decentralized and open source. And I know that that's what you fully believe, because if we can't do everything on chain, and if we can't actually build out these decentralized platforms and protocols, then they're just going to look at us as like, you know, that scene of the Wizard of Oz, where the wizard was just behind the curtain. That's what mm. they look at us right now. They look at SBF. They look at all these, these bankruptcies and these things that the dominoes that have been falling. And unfortunately now, because we failed to regulate in that sense of the word, and I mean, I don't even know if I want to go back. We've, I've discussed the FTX and the drama so many times, I kind of want to move on from it already. And that's, mm. almost, that's another lesson that I always tell people is time. Time always heals in this, in this space. And unfortunately, right now, we'll probably have to go through the holiday season in the next few months before like enough time has passed because there's just so much trauma now. It's not just crypto folks. It's regular people that lost money too in all this drama. I don't know anyone who wasn't touched by the, the common answer is now is like, did you lose money? Oh, only a little bit that I don't care about. But it shouldn't be. You shouldn't have lost. If you lose money in Bitcoin or crypto, it should be because you made a bad trade. Not because someone rug pulled you or it was like double dealing and, and some other, you know, building up assets against a token that that didn't end up existing or whatever like that. There's, there's so much that to unpack or whatever. The doing good aspect is very important to you. The doing good aspect is very important to you. I'd love to like... Dive deep into why you really think we all need to be positive and and active and have that like moral compass in the back. But why did you start Angel Block? And, you know, you, you, you're in the space, you you're an advisor to Olive Zero, you're an exec at CoinDeal. There's a lot of things that you did in the space beforehand. You understand the regulatory space. You were a consultant. Now you went in and started your own company. And full decentralization is what Angel Block is really pushing forwards when it comes to like, not just from the investor side, but also on the entrepreneur on the startup side, because how many projects have we all invested in or bought a token and there's no, we don't know what the hell's going on with the team or whatever.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. There's a few different things that led me here. One of them was trying to raise back in COVID times during lockdowns. And that that's when I started really realizing that a lot of fundraising is very much network-based. It's not merit-based, right? I forgot what the exact stat is, but I think something like the top 24 out of the top 25 like Indian startups are bootstrapped, right? And it's only now are we starting to look at uh, Indian startups and these other like booming geographies like jurisdictions that simply weren't on the map. I know one of the few good players in this space, like I personally believe they're a good player on the VC side, which is A16Z, 77% of all of their investments were US-based last year, right? And the other four, the, another 4% were Canada, which is, you know, geographically right nearby and English speaking. And another 4% were in uh, in the UK. So those three countries, it's the majority of their portfolio. So 50% started, of our listenership. Sorry?
1: I said, that's like 50% of my listenership. But you're going to say so recently, you sorry.
0: Yeah. And, and recently, well, recently, last few years, I really started looking at the fundraising space from a bit of a closer perspective. Like I, I myself, like I'm an angel investor. I've done a number of deals. I'm also uh, an LP and a couple VC funds. And I think the ICO boom was the first thing that really showed me that, holy crap, like, of, of course, it was highly unregulated. And there was, you know, we we're right in the middle of a bull market, which kind of just added fuel to the fire. But that's when the problem really became apparent, where we have multi million dollar raises, sometimes even hundreds of millions of dollars in the case of many, many projects back in those days. And five years later, after hundreds or $150 million raised, there's still no product or service to show for, right? And it's obviously incredibly problematic. But another aspect is why is the investors that is essentially paying the cost for this? Why is, why are they paying the price? Another thing is that I, I think that fundraising just needs a little bit of a shakedown. We we need, I hate saying this, you know, the disruption because it's like been overused already in web two. I'm definitely not trying to disrupt anything. I just think it's a system that works natively in crypto with what we're doing with Angel Block. So basically taking fundraising and Making it a protocol, making it live on a protocol layer. And there's a lot of cool things that we can do that go outside of regulatory control, because even when you raise in crypto and you live, I don't know, um let's say Poland or the u s, and you raise through an SPV or something in the Cayman or Bahamas or something offshore, right? Like even if you do have a regulatory route, it's going to take a really long time, and there might not be anything that comes out of it. So, Our entire ethos with this was why rely on systems that have already proven that they don't work in crypto? Why don't we try and add that additional level of security, but using technology, using, making everything on chain, right? Let's have this be governed by the protocol. So one of the things that we did was the entire raise is held in smart contracts. And a really cool caveat of that is we have this, we call it post-raise governance, where essentially the startup, you know, everybody has a burn rate, everybody needs to pay salaries. We don't want to hold, you know, anyone hostage over the funds that they raise. That's not the point, but it's about leveling out the playing field between the startup and the investor. So what this allows us to do is if there's a $10 million raise, we can customize these smart contracts where $2 million for example is paid out immediately after the raise is completed and the rest is subject to post-raise governance. So basically you have weighted governance in how much you invested in this particular round. And it's based on milestones. So is this startup delivering? Are they doing what they said they would be doing? If that happens, great. The system is working how it's supposed to work. Investors get together to to vote and additional capital is paid out from the smart contract. But if we have another repeat, you know, of, as you mentioned, FTX, Alameda, everything that happened in the 2017 ICO run and teams start scrubbing their socials, there's no product, there's no service. They don't even, yeah, then you can actually vote you can have like a vote of no confidence and that smart contract can redistribute what's held in it back to the original contributors. So, you know, obviously there, there really isn't a system that you can create where you can control a hundred percent of the funds. Like obviously, you know, back, you, you can, you have some legal recourse there, but the system that we created, you might not get everything back, but you haven't invested 10 mil. You invested, you know, nine, 8.5, something like that before something worse happens.
1: I remember when we were negotiating like the operating agreement for a bit instant, there was was like a line item that just said, if I want to spend more than $50,000 on any single thing, I think it was like I had to get permission from the investors and like that. And that is like something that you have to put in there, but that's like the best governance you can probably get. And so you're talking about putting everything on chain and you're right. Like our whole industry in the past few years was funded by money just being wired in, in the traditional sense, without any attachments to the money or like recourse, right? It's just like once the money was in the bank and money was just has, and especially customer deposits just became like the ammunition of the, and we saw this with like Celsius, Voyager, BlockFi, FTX, and so many other ones, but there were hundreds more, hundreds. So many, we read about them every day, rug pulls, exit scams, I'm a VC and, and we've invested in, in eight or nine companies this year, and so so far, our portfolio companies are great. But I hear I hear my friends who are co- fellow VCs as well, tell me all the time, or just angel investors too. It's like the money was run away with. How many tokens did I invest in back in 16, 2016, where the token never came to be? They never even got listed. Nothing ever happened. It's just like that we need to end that. That, the, the scams the de- grifters, the frauds, all the bullshit, right? And and what's cool is that I remember in the early Bitcoin days, there was a big push to, to use Bitcoin as like this fundraising tool, but for charity, right? And were, the whole promise was, we'll raise this money that can be tracked and then you can leave it in an account and then it can be doled out. But we were saying, well, it has to be on the blockchain. They ha- there has to be governance involved. And they said, well, the charities are not interested in doing that. And of course because a lot of the charities just want to like not a lot of them but some of them just like to keep more money than than they're actually, you know, doling out for for charitable causes. But if there was better governance, maybe the people putting money in would put their money into places where there was better governance. So that's what you did here. That's what you did for for the business investing world and for the angel investing world. You're allowing for it's like once the money's in there, it's not just like disappearing and you're at the whims of a team or entrepreneur or board, it can be tracked and utilized for specific ways. And you could, like you said, vote.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and one thing I want to touch upon, like you mentioned rug pulls. So I actually have like, this is a big part of our selling point, especially when we talk to funds and VCs is $2.9 billion was lost to rug pulls in 2021 alone. So this is actually the first time that This stat is being tracked as a separate crypto scam. This is a chain analysis report, so you know, like they've been pretty much on the money in the past. So, so that's basically three billion dollars, and that took up that was thirty-seven percent of all crypto scams in twenty twenty-one were rug pulls, right? So, when we say something like TAM, like total addressable market, because we're Ethereum first, we're building on Ethereum, so. A nice stat would be like, oh, our t- total addressable market is, you know, all the dApps and the market cap that's on ETH. But the way that I think of it is one of those total addressable markets is that that $3 billion that was lost to rug pulls because that's exactly what we're going after. We just want more transparency and more security for people that are making the space great, which is, you know, the investors and people that are taking risks. But we want to create a mechanism where your risks don't need to be binary. It's not zero or 100, right? Like we want to protect your downside, especially. But when you also mentioned the charities and the governance, and this is something that we, we thought about a lot as well. And we know that realistically, uh, not everybody wants to take part in governance, right? And, and what happens then? So the way that we designed this protocol, it's very similar to, we, we basically took the best lessons learned from a lot of these major layer ones that run on like a proof of stake kind of consensus algorithm. And... We have a system of validators that we're going to start internally just because we need to make sure that the protocol is functioning the way it's supposed to function. But we're in talks with a few different VCs to actually come on board as validators because validators also perform due diligence on the startup. Like we basically want to remove as much of the human element going forward and promote decentralization of this protocol as humanly possible. And that's where the validators come in as well. Like the validators, they need to make sure because you have an economic upside in the amount of tokens that you're staking to be a good actor and a good validator. And if other validators don't agree with this one validator, then there's this potential of slashing if you're actively trying to game the system to your own benefit. So we we fully understand that not everybody wants to take part in governance. And it's just one of those things that we saw with a lot of these DAOs and everything else that's popping up. Well, how do you actually incentivize people to take part in governance and we spent probably the better part of the last year, just thinking about this and and implementing it into our protocol.
1: How does my fund become like a VC validator? Uh, (laughs) That's really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Like, (laughs) I I think it's a, I think it's a good um, mechanism because I um, I obviously want to be a validator as well. And I don't think there's anybody better versed in this space to say whether a startup has what it takes to, you know, jump to that next level and validate and, and reap the benefits of being a validator as well as some of these, you know, crypto VCs that are in the space. Like, I definitely, like, I, I when thinking of the system, like, I, I was definitely thinking about, you know, hitting up angel investors and VCs and, you know, some of the good verifiable ones. Because that's one thing I don't like about the space is just because someone says they're like a VC, right? And yeah. someone's automatically, they think, oh, they really know their stuff. Like, like they must be a good player. And no, I'm just the wizard. amount of VCs. But you don't, like, you don't actively dump. You don't say like, yeah, yeah, give me yeah. the longest lockup. And then like, hey, yeah. where are my tokens the next month, right? Like that's what I say when I mean bad VC.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of like angel people that became. And I thought, I honestly, I thought I was, I would never say it publicly, but I thought I was a VC doing angel investing. And now that I'm part of like a fund with an investment yeah. committee and like you have LPs and where like now the money is liability, you have to invest it, right? yeah. It's a whole different world. And I kind of enjoy the idea of apprenticeship. I like the idea of like being an apprentice. So like when I made this movie, Mm -hmm. it was to be an apprentice of another writer, director, producer, and to hang out with my wife because she's an actor too. Mm -hmm. But I fully went into it knowing, shut my mouth, stay under the radar, be a fly on the wall and just learn. And that's kind of what I'm doing on the VC world now. My job is exactly what you said. When we're doing the due diligence or we're talking to companies, and by the way, if you're any company out there looking to raise, please contact Alex and also contact myself too. My job is looking at the team. I have to look at the people and how I have very frank conversations with the two or three founders. And I try to look at, do I think they have what it takes to get through a bear market? That's that's what I look at, a multiple. Like, will they be able to bring their company through multiple of these cycles? I look at some of the most successful companies like Kraken and some of these other ones. And hopefully, like I'll be saying it like yourselves in, in the next year or two, and so many other companies is really like the team, passionate people like yourself. And that's that's what it is.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. And like I, I definitely agree on the being an apprentice aspect of everything. To be totally honest, like I don't think I would be able to create Angel Block and be where we are with Angel Block if it wasn't for the team from Aleph Zero. Right. Like, That's I think awesome. they're honestly some of the smartest people in this space. And being an advisor to Aleph, first of all, it's an incredible honor, but I honestly think that I got more out of it than they got out of it. Right. I don't think it's the fairest deal just because working side by side with them, some of the, I honestly believe they're some of the smartest people in this space right now. And I just learned a bunch that we incorporated into how the actual protocol for Angel Block is supposed to work a lot of the validator system is, is is taken a lot from their setup, and I absolutely love it. And, you know, if anybody here is into revolutionary L1s, like I highly recommend you to check out Aleph Zero. They've done so much work throughout bear markets. They started in 2018. So, you know, right when everything went south, and they've just been building and building, and they're up to about 60 people Wow, doing, yeah, the chain. They, they actually wrote their own consensus protocol called Aleph BFT super smart people like every everybody there like on the engineering team and on the founding team has like multiple PhDs they're just wicked wicked smart people and the chain is currently doing something around 100,000 TPS with subsecond finality and like smart contracts are about to hit mainnet i think in uh january at the latest so i mean it's just incredible to have them and and we're actually really excited it's going to be the first chain that we integrate into the Angel Block protocol after releasing on Ethereum on October 31st. And I know October 31st is a pretty big date in crypto and we chose it very deliberately to kind of coincide with the Bitcoin white yeah, paper. also awesome. kind of our li- li- our our little nod to that. So having our protocol launch on that day was was pretty pretty cool to us. Like we all started as Bitcoiners, right?
1: Yeah. Tell me, you know that's interesting because because I've been thinking about that today. It's like, how what does it mean to be a Bitcoiner in a crypto world?
0: I think it's changing every year. Like to be honest, this was one of the questions I wanted to ask you coming on the show, (laughs) because you know you and Eric Voorhees, I think, are probably the two most prominent people that were crypto, like Bitcoin OGs back in the day, and you've embraced other aspects of crypto, right? And I think what like I used to shamelessly say that like I'm, I'm a bitcoin maxi back in like 2017 18, two. 18 19 like i, I would yeah I, I said it but right now i don't think maximalism means what it used to it just maximalism means just the this hardcore tribalism where you need to bash absolutely everything else that's in this space that is in bitcoin or surrounding bitcoin tech and this binary and zero-sum kind of approach to crypto markets is incredibly problematic. And, and it's happening on the Ethereum side as well, right? Like, I, I love Ethereum. I think it's done some amazing things. But we're seeing these um, ETH maxis that are just as detrimental to the space as some of the most hardcore, like, Bitcoin maxis, in my opinion. So I, I think that right now, it's, I think there's all the downside and zero upside to maximalism in crypto. I know I was definitely like I would probably be in a different position right now than, than I am right now if if I kind of stayed away from a lot of that maxi talk back in uh, 2019. But what does it mean? Like that's a that's a good question. I definitely think that Bitcoin losing its place as a number one cryptocurrency would be incredibly problematic. I'm not a big fan, you know, of the flippening talk. Like I do, I I, I basically see Bitcoin when it comes to markets as this index, right? Like if if It's hard for things to do well if Bitcoin isn't doing well, is kind of the point of view that I have. I think that Bitcoin is by far the most tested and secure network out there, especially outside of ETH. I think that if people want to start their journey in crypto, that, you know, dollar cost averaging, Bitcoin is probably the safest thing to do. But I I do understand where a lot of these maxis come from, where, you know, they, they refer to everything as a shitcoin. I, I understand how you can get burnt in this market, but disregarding 99 percent of what's going on in this space, I don't think is helpful to anyone, you know? What's your take on this? I'm actually I was really watching curious. The Last
1: Kingdom on Netflix and um Maximalist kind of remind me of there was a scene where Uhtred was talking to his son and he's like, You need to go talk to my daughter because the darkness has fallen on her. And it's about someone else also, like another, he's like, and I saw it happen with Brita, who was another character who the darkness fell upon her and she became like a maximalist. And what happened, kind of look at the same thing. Unfortunately, we all go through it. Maximalism, and it's not just to, to the Bitcoin and crypto world. It's, it's, in, it's in religion. It's in, it's in everything. It's in nationalism. It's in, uh, we go back in history. It, it's it's when you assign a label and it's, it's, first of all, a lot of time it's like, when you've been disenfranchised or burned. So like you said, rug pull scams. Bitcoiners, especially Bitcoin, like early people that have become the maximalists were folks, unfortunately, who were taken advantage of the most. scammed, rug pilled, a lot of times didn't buy enough Bitcoin because they didn't ever think Bitcoin was going to become, like myself, like if we all knew Bitcoin was to become as big as it was, don't you think we all would have bought a lot more? Like we're, a lot of the early people. Oh yeah. But at some point, it was they—they they see it as crypto being kind of co-opting Bitcoin, and I kind of look at it as like the Kennedy. Remember that Kennedy made that speech? sometime in the '60s, he went to—he were—he went to to West Berlin and he went to the Berlin Wall, and he said, mm. "Ich bin ein Berliner," and I kind of say like, "Ich bin ein Bitcoiner," and he was saying like, "We're all Berliners or we're all Bitcoiners yeah. in that moment, no matter who you are, or what you are in the space." That's exactly why I even do this podcast, to remind people that the values of what Satoshi and why he even released the white paper and wrote his janky code. I mean, the original Bitcoin code wasn't even good code. It was just more of a proof of concept. The reason was a disenfranchisement with how our money is being spent. And don't you all cringe when we wake up every day and we're all struggling right now. Taxes, property insurance, and things like that go up. And all of a sudden, like we read that another trillion dollars is being allocated for military spending in the US, a trillion dollars in just for another few months. Like, shit, I'm sitting here like losing my money in FTX and Voyager and the government just printing more money. It's stressful. And that's where maximalism, nationalism comes from. And we see it in the Bitcoin space too. But let's, let's dive into this a little bit. I'd love to really talk about this. How did I get away from being a maximalist and, and being, and what I call myself now, and I want to hear your answer on this too, is I looked at what were the values of Bitcoin that made me fall in love with it. And the values were when you reach this point of no return of decentralization for a blockchain. And what that point of no return is, it's like you have the path to decentralization. And I actually take this from this religious Jewish book. I grew up in a very religious family called The Path of the Just. And I take inspiration from there. The path of decentralization is you're always on the path. You'll never fully get there. But once you hit a point of no return, it allows your blockchain to be fully censorship resistant, decentralized. It allows your blockchain and your token to not be frozen or reversed or where anyone can wake up and your money can be disappeared the next day. Or if you're talking about data, no one can prevent you or anyone else from sending data or information a full, free and fair, equal playing field and internet and stuff like that. At the same time, not every blockchain is trying to claim to be that. And as long as they, they disclose enough of like what they're trying to do and what they're trying to be, then that's great because there's so many different applications for blockchains and for protocols and for, for cryptographic, like zero knowledge proof and things like that. It doesn't have to be just like fully decentralized money a trucking logistical company could want to make their own permissioned blockchain like yourself you want to have post chain governance that allows for voting and be able to like not let entrepreneurs freely spend their money that's so you're not trying to claim to be a fully bitcoin blockchain but a lot of blockchains are claiming to be decentralized and have and have stolen people's money and that's where i'm a maximalist
0: yeah i definitely agree with 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 a lot of what you said and You know, with decentralization, with censorship resistance, there's levels to this game, right? And I think absolutely any chain, even the most decentralized, can take a lot of heat if you spend a lot enough time looking at some of the stats, right? So, what has been one of the main things thrown, you know, kind of the shade thrown at Bitcoin is the centralization of the hash rate, right? Like that's been pretty big throughout the years. So, no matter what the claim is there's always going to be this little caveat that you can find that you can nitpick at. And another thing that you For mentioned sure. is the original Bitcoin code, right? Like everything is a progress, like, like AngelBlock here, like not, not to shill or anything, but this is something that we definitely incorporated while building. And it's what I mentioned with the validators. It's we will start at a certain level of decentralization and automation, probably the maximum of what we can do at that time in order just to kick things off. But just because we start here doesn't mean that that's our end game, right? Like we are striving to be as decentralized as possible, and I think a lot of these chains they take a lot of heat in their early days because they have a they have a similar ethos, they share the same values, they have a similar ethos. But you can't really start out at you know maximum decentralization always. Like it's always going to take some time, and that's fine. You know, at the end of the day, it's fine. And and I think that speaking about maximalism per se. It's it's very un-Bitcoin bash things in the open market, in my opinion. Like, if it hits the market, if there's someone working on it, I think that you can question their values if they're not where they should be. You can question their ethos. But, you know, the things that we said in Bitcoin, like back in the day, that, you know, I don't think really anyone's saying it anymore. Like, if you don't like it, fork it, right? And I miss that. and, And that's what's kind of... Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what's going on. Like, if you don't like it, you can fork it. And and that's what's been kind of going on. Like, hey, I'm working on this new thing. It's a bit different than this thing that we've been used to over the last few years. If you like it, come use it. If don't, that's cool. And I think that's what we're missing. Because right now we're at, I don't like it. I don't want to use it. And right now I want to tell everybody else that they sh- they shouldn't use it or fork it either. And that's not really a space where no. we can grow, right? With that kind of mindset. So
1: you've like, you, you, it seems like the, the ethos of what it means to be a Bitcoiner is firmly ingrained in, in you and your corporate culture. And actually, that's one of the biggest things that I look for in a team. And one of the reasons that the, the successful early Bitcoin and crypto companies that are still around today are still around is because they incorporate that exact Bitcoiner ethos into their company and they embrace being a Bitcoiner in a crypto world. That, that equal playing field where there's transparency, there's voting for, for, for like uh, governance of, a, of like what it's called a charity or even a business when it comes to like lending and, and staking and borrowing, compliance, ease of use, decentralization, all these like different like terms and stuff that, that we talk about you're putting all of those things on a protocol, on chain. And so that's really interesting. And I think that's what angel block is, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like um, the way I think of angel block is like, we just want to, it's actually going to sound funny because I was about to say we're all we want to do. And they just say this like yeah. really elaborate big thing. That's probably unachievable at hundred percent, but we we want to, in essence, create the infrastructure for crypto native raises going forward, right? I don't like what's going on in this space. I don't like the fact that everything is incredibly like, especially in fundraising, everything is very fragmented, right? Like it's incredibly fragmented. It's very hard to put something together that essentially isn't another day job for the founder, right? Like I haven't slept well in two years. I can tell you that like raising and building what we're building. And um, I also don't think there's any infrastructure that's comparable to something like AngelList, which is angel investors use it, VCs use it, obviously in crypto, whether we like it or not, we do need this community slash retail aspect if something is going to make it. And there really isn't anything like that. And actually, one thing that I said recently, because one of the questions that I get is like, oh, like, then why don't you like launch pads? And, and this is something that we never communicate that like we're, we're a launch pad, even though like, yes, there is the fundraising aspect. Yes, there is the token aspect. But I, I think launchpads are quite problematic in this space. I only know of a few I've, I've dug deep on a few and if anything like really self promotes as a launchpad, like in, in my mind, I have negative connotations like right off the bat. So I actually had like one launchpad called me literally two days ago to talk. i said this actually in an a- AMA, like two days ago, when it, like an hour after it happened and they asked for some allocation I'm like, well, you know, I don't think the optics are really there for us. Like it's, it's, I feel a bit weird. Like we have this fundraising element and then we would list on you guys. And like, I just, I'm not a big fan. I don't, I don't like the optics of it. He's like, no, no, no but it's going to be really cool because what we do is we work with these projects, right? Uh, we take like 150, 200 K to list, but we work with them like really closely. And I mean, and I said, well, what do you mean by work with them really closely? Well, we lower their initial market cap. Why? Because that's because that's how it pumps.
1: That's what they do, yeah.
0: I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So, so, so you want to work with me. You know nothing about my project. Absolutely nothing. You want to rework my token economics in order to lower their initial market cap. So basically like either raise less, but what's more realistic is um, drastically increase the vesting and lockup periods, right? Because that's how you're going to have a smaller initial market cap in order for it to quote unquote pump. So I looked at some of these projects that he said did incredibly well on that on that launchpad and by incredibly well obviously we're in a bear market so you need to you know take that into consideration but everything all all the projects that I looked at that listed there are losing 99% of value they've been listed for a year year and a half you know on CoinGecko coin market cap like it's easily verifiable but what's worse is with that little tweak in the token economics Lowering that initial market cap and significantly, because he told me that the best results are if you decrease your initial market cap to two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, which, as we know in crypto is basically yeah. nothing, right? You're basically launching at zero. And absolutely every project that I checked has had a pump, a dump. But what's worst is there is no clear reversal yep. in sight because they've lost ninety nine percent of value, and each one of them, has a circulating supply of nine to twelve percent, so it basically means that any other unlocks are going to happen in this market. It's just going to create more sell pressure, right? Because people yeah. want to get out of that investment.
1: Definitely, like and, have bought tokens like that, so <laughs> that I've been susceptible to those too. We all have. Half my listeners are probably yeah. nodding their heads themselves that have, we've all, and, and and but see, you're saying that we could see a crypto future without things like that. That I mean, I, that would be amazing.
0: You know, I'm working on it, hopefully, like if everything goes well. You know, we have an incredibly smart team. We've been building this for two years. And I definitely want to create a better system, an on-chain, verifiable, transparent system without these pumps, without these dumps, without, you know, people losing accountability. That's another thing is like, I've I've lost like high six figures because I trusted a team that in essence, it looks like they, you know, they should have had locked up vested tokens and they went through TGE, generated absolutely everything. And they just dumped on their followers. This is the system that I call like the vesting in crypto. A lot of it is lol, trust me, bro, because it's just like generating all the token and then holding it on a treasure and following some kind of vesting schedule and sending it out. But everything's been generated, right? Nothing's held in smart contracts. And for us, like it's from start to finish, it's protocol, it's smart contracts. So when it comes to vesting, when it comes to token distribution, cap table management, everything is on chain and everything is locked up in smart contracts and no one has access to it, right? I think that's the system that we should be pursuing rather than spinning up another centralized entity, which have been proven over the last few years, and especially this year, that we shouldn't go down this route. We shouldn't trust centralized entities where you have no idea what's going on in this, you know black hole once everything hits their balance sheet and their uh, Excel spreadsheets and all that good stuff. And I just think that we should just hold as much of everything as we can on chain, like Celsius was a great example. What's the first loan that Celsius had to pay off? It was it was Aave, right? Because there there's no like, you can't swing anything else there. There's no one you can sweet talk or like cut a deal with like, protocol is law, like code is law. I think that As long as we don't realize it, the more FTXs and Celsiuses, unfortunately, we're going to have to live with because it's it's just not sustainable. Like trusting people like we've trusted over the course of the last year or two is just it's not feasible. It's not how we grow and it's how we can essentially like demolish this space.
1: We used to say trust, but verify. And now people can. Exactly. Trust, but verify. Yeah, it's it's been a crazy it's been a crazy last few years. And navigating that has been has been difficult, but now that we're in the ashes, I think we'll see a lot of cool products and services come out of it, hybrid finance, angel block, what you're building, different type of things. And I think a lot of people in the back of their mind are saying, well, if we remove the speculation, then we're not going to have a bull market anymore. And my response is always, look at the stock market, look at over the years, how much value that's created. It's a terrible example, but I am trying to look at another like public market. Look at any other industry where there has been at least a better system for money being moved around it, I should say. I guess that's not really a good example. But I guess what I'm trying to say is if we have better companies that are raising money and doing it this way, then we'll be prevented from having these big bursts potentially and where we all lose our money. And I think if we keep it as simple as that, I don't even know.
0: Absolutely. And it's, you know, one thing that happened very recently that I definitely want to do my best to avoid is the amount of incredibly smart and talented people, whether it's on the VC side, or on the tech side of crypto, or even the trading side of crypto, who after these recent blowups, they basically said, like, I just want to take a break. I want to walk away, right? Like I like this, it's, it's gotten too much for me. Like I, I have lost trust. And I think that if we have this mass exodus, you know, the, we're, we're just worse off, right? If we lose some of the brightest minds in the space, just because like they feel like they can't trust anyone anymore,
1: I think I should change the name of the show to crypto rehab because everyone gets
0: at least at least yeah, next burn few
1: out it's stuff like that <laughs> well, honestly, you've definitely given me like a lot of hope and bright spots and things to look forward to, and that's what the show does. I appreciate you taking the time and and coming on on untold stories today, Alex and and all the listeners, you're probably listening to this episode. Thanks to Angel Block for supporting us over the last few months. Going forward, we're we're gonna be doing some really cool things, be ad free. Please, please just hit that subscribe button if or leave me a, a good review or whatever, but just hit that subscribe button because that counts a lot for me. Thank you everyone for listening to the show and, and thank you, Alex, for joining.